How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hey, thanks for hitting the play button and welcome to episode number 12 of the Towards Data Science podcast. My name is Jeremy and as always, I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And today we're talking to Rachel Tatman, who's a data scientist at Kaggle. And I'm super excited about this chat, not only because Kaggle, of course, is a great tool for anyone who's looking to improve their data science game, but also because Rachel herself has a really interesting background that includes specialization in NLP and great experience with personal brand building, as well as some really interesting thoughts about the value of grad school, and especially PhDs when it comes to getting hired in data science. Lots to get to here, so let's just dive right in. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you here. Um, you're doing data science at Kaggle right now, and I want to make sure we get to your thoughts on Kaggle, how to get the most value out of it, and what you've, what you've learned from working there, among other things. But I think it'd be worth starting by moving back in time first to 2012 when you started your PhD in the really interesting sounding field of computational sociolinguistics. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Is that where you had your first contact with data science? Yes. Um, and actually, I should uh, just sort of as a, a disciplinary um, note, uh, when I started my PhD, computational sociolinguistics as a field that people talked about didn't really exist. So I, along with a handful of other researchers, um, Jack Reeve, Dong Nguyen, uh, Tyler Schnabloen, I always say that wrong, sorry, Tyler, if you're listening, um, were really the first group of researchers um, who were working in NLP, natural language processing, so computational models for handling language variation, uh, but then also um, sociolinguistics and particularly variationist sociolinguistics and trying to bring those two fields together. Uh, so my, my focus in graduate school was um, a little oddly, I did both speech and text, which is a little bit unusual in um, in either NLP or, or linguistics. It's not that people don't do it, it's just a little bit weird for people to do both. Uh, and I was looking at um, correlates of social identity, and I was also really interested in um, how you use your knowledge about a person and their social identity in order to perceive them better, um, and also to what degree variation in text actually reflects variation in speech. Because um, we're not, I don't know if you've ever had to do close transcription, but we don't write the way that we speak. Like, um, even if you if you read a transcript of a, of a conversation, usually people like remove the not necessarily the errors, but all of the sort of disfluencies that make conversation the way that it is. So you're tackling these two problems in parallel. Mm -hmm. were, were you trying to like build one model that would generalize to both use cases or was it very much two sort of separate problem sets? Yeah, I did tend to work on them, them separately. So, um, and that is where I sort of first got into data science. Uh, I, and it wasn't, 
I think even when I started graduate school, data science also wasn't a field. So it was all of these very new emerging things that people were looking at. Um, and I wanted to do um, larger analyses and uh, more statistical modeling and more machine learning. Uh, so I took a bunch of classes in um, statistics and the University of Washington, where I did my PhD, actually has a, uh, a department or a program. It has professors in it for um, the Center for Statistics and Social Sciences, I think. So I had um, an introduction to statistics from statisticians who are working in social science, which was, was fantastic. Um, I had coursework in causal modeling, um, which is a fascinating field if, you, if you've never looked into it. Um, of course, courses in, in R, I had a lot of uh, R instruction, uh, not so much Python until I got towards the end of my um, graduate career, uh, Bayesian modeling. To ask a really stupid question, causal modeling, I mean, I assume this has to do with the, the challenge of distinguishing between correlation and causation, like is an effect actually causal? Yes, absolutely. So the field of causal modeling is with a certain degree of you know certainty, how sure can we be that X actually caused Y? Um, and sort of the way that you do that is you draw a um, uh, a acyclic graph, right? Like a, a DAG. Um, and then you, with certain degrees of um, certainty, begin to erase potential um, uh, you know, causal links. Once you, you reach some sort of threshold in the end, you're like, here's a model of what's causing what. Um, and then, of course, there's always, you know, hidden hidden things you can't be sure about. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's, it is talking about causality in a statistical mathematical way. Um, they're very hard. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, graph theory no. doesn't tend to be trivial. Yeah. No. And so you're, you're doing all these, I mean, it almost sounds like you're doing machine learning almost before machine learning was a thing. I mean, if it's 2012 or... So machine learning as a, as a discipline has been around for um, right, quite yeah. a while. I definitely was starting to learn about it um, well data science as a field and machine learning as a career path outside of academia and outside of research was becoming more and more viable and larger and larger. Um, and I didn't even start to think about myself as a data scientist until... Uh, probably the last year of my degree, um, when I was looking at job descriptions, I was like, oh, I can do that. That's me. I'm the data scientist now, uh, which is a good feeling. Did you experience imposter syndrome when you were when breaking in or, or did you feel like you really could tick all those boxes? Oh, no, I, I still don't feel like a, like a real data scientist. Um, and I think a big part of that is that the field is so nebulous. Like if you're, if you're a software engineer, you know, you're doing front end, there's a set of things that you... Yep you know as part of your career and that's very codified and that's very sort of like standardized at this point what does a data scientist know does a data scientist know hypothesis testing i'd like to say yes but i also think there are people who would call themselves data scientists who have never done any hypothesis to testing and have no formal statistical training um, is a data scientist somebody who builds deep learning systems do you have to know image recognition to be a data scientist um, so no matter how well-rounded you are there's always going to be a little little piece of the pie that's missing that someone thinks Things is the thing that data scientists do. Um, so I think I'm at peace with not knowing everything and having like my little my little pile of coins that I've collected and I'm like mm, p values mm, <laughs> that I can, can hold on to. I think that's actually a, a really and it's it's great that you're open about that too because you know privately when I talk one on one with data scientists they always say something like this like it's mm -hmm. I've never talked to a data scientist almost at any level of experience who'll go like yeah I'm killing it I feel super confident in everything I do so for people <laughs> yeah. breaking in I mean you know obviously Rachel here is a data scientist at 
Kaggle. She has a PhD. She is, by any definition of the term, a data scientist, and yet, you know, it's a it's a psychological blocker. I, I wonder, I'm curious, how did you overcome imposter syndrome as you were at least going through the job search? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think anyone ever, well... Let me put it this way. If someone was like, I'm great at everything in field X, I wouldn't trust them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think that they would probably not have actually a very good idea of what was going on in field X. Um, so I think just being honest helps. And this is not me saying go out and getting a P get a PhD because it's never my advice to anyone. But having a PhD did help because it's like, it's a piece of paper I can point to and be like, at some point, somebody thought I was really smart mm. and like wrote the dang thing. So um, if I, you know, um, forget the formula for linear regression uh, in front of 10,000 people, that's never happened. But, you know, worst yeah. case scenario, I can be like, but also I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a bad crutch. <laughs> yeah, so, so find something that you know that you're good at, that you feel very confident about. And it doesn't even have to be in data science. It could be like, I'm a great badminton player. And I know that about myself. And even as I'm exploring this new field and being a beginner here, I know I was a beginner there and I've progressed and I'm going to progress here as well. Um, I think that's helpful. That, that's a really, that's a really interesting insight too. It speaks to, and maybe this, you're talking about correlates of identity earlier. Maybe this identity um, theme actually is pretty important, giving ourselves something for our egos to lean on while we uh, do other things. Definitely. And especially in, in the job search or any time when you're looking into um, starting a new job, there's always going to be like identity work you have to do. Your job title changes. Does that mm. change who you are and how you represent yourself? Um, and that's just, you know, uh, a part of the process that can be extremely uncomfortable, uh, yeah. especially depending on, on the transition. So transitioning from being someone who wanted to be a professor and that was the only thing I wanted to, oh, hey, maybe I do want to be a data scientist. Having that little like um, schism in what I thought about myself was a really uncomfortable process. I had to like have a lot of conversations with people around me and, and figure out um, who who Rachel not going to be a professor was. Yeah. Um, and it's, well, it's rough. It's hard. But but a real test of character and ultimately coming out the other way. I mean, it, we all have to do that at some point if we're if we're ever going to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you're in one career path your entire life, at some point you'll probably retire. Good point. That's true. Change is inevitable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so actually one thing I, I do want to ask about, because you alluded to the idea that the PhD mm -hmm. isn't something that you would recommend to anyone or perhaps everyone. Um, do you mind if I pry a little bit there? Like what were the, let's say, the, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of the, the PhD in your, in your view? Yeah. Um, so my universal advice to everybody is not to go to grad school, period. Um, and if I can dissuade you by saying that, then also you probably would have been dissuaded at some point during your, your graduate uh, career. Um, there's so many reasons not to do a PhD. Uh, reasons to do a PhD, you want to do research in a field, and you know that. You know for sure that research is the only thing you're going to find deeply fulfilling in a career. Uh, you want to be a professor in a field. Um, and the unfortunate truth about PhD programs pretty much the world over is that they admit many more PhD candidates um, than there are jobs for by several orders of magnitude. Um, so I think in, in linguistics, last time I checked, uh, about 1% of linguistics PhDs end up being in academia in linguistics. And that's what the that's what the, the doctoral program prepares you for. It prepares you for a single job path um, that statistically you're not going to do. And it, yeah. it, it, I'm not saying that like, oh, it's the top 1% necessarily. It's just like, 
the people who happen to be doing research on something that there was a job opening for, right? There's a, there's a large amount of, uh, of luck. And of course, it is very hard to get a faculty job. And if you do, good for you. Um, but it's extremely unlikely. So you are spending, you know, I was pretty lucky. I got out in five years. That's a very short PhD. Um, you know, 10 years is not unheard of. It's a little yep. long. I would not recommend that. Try to get out a little bit faster if you, you have the, the capacity. Um, and that was five years in my 20s. Um, at the same time, my husband had gone into industry, was, you know, advancing in his chosen career path, getting promoted. Um, he had a 401k, which I did not. <laughs> I had like five pennies in a sock I hid under my bed. Um, and so there's, there's a big opportunity cost to uh, graduate school and especially a PhD. Um, will the advantages of having a PhD outweigh the time that you took to get it? Well, I, I don't know. It depends. Um, I had a great time in my PhD program. I learned a lot. I made a lot of friends. Um, I... Yeah, I'd probably do it over again. Um, but also I was very hard-headed and knew that that's what I wanted to do and no one could dissuade me. Um, so for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, a PhD is not going to help you. If you are trying to get a PhD in data science or a data science related field, because a lot of PhD job ads say that they want PhDs, um, it's going to take you five to 10 years yep. to get that PhD, right? And when I started my PhD, data science was not a field. Yep. Um, trying to trace industry trends with a graduate degree will always end up biting you in the butt. You're never going to be able to get out of your graduate degree fast enough to jump on that. Um, so don't, don't put that on yourself. You're just going to make yourself unhappy. Don't do that. It's so funny. So much of this resonates with at least my own personal experience, I, I dropped out of my physics PhD back in the day. Mm -hmm. And Good for, for, I, I, I agree <laughs> for exactly the same reasons you mentioned. I find myself often talking to people who, yeah, who say like, I, I wish I'd, um, I wish I'd started a PhD in machine learning five years ago. And it's like so much of that also, I think depends on the supervisor and the project you work on. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. five years ago, you know, PySpark wasn't a thing. A TensorFlow mm -hmm. wasn't a thing. All these, these things that we take for granted, partly. You'd be using MATLAB. You'd be using MATLAB or Octave or, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so you'd walk out. It's this brave new world, and you're having to learn everything from scratch anyway um, on graduation day. So anyway, really interesting to hear it from the, the computational sociolinguistics um, stance. <laughs> Good to know it's consistent. Um, cool. And so now you, you, you uh, went into the job search. You were leveraging the stuff you learned in your degree. Mm -hmm. Did you kind of start tuning towards the end of that degree? Was was the last year when you really started focusing on, okay, now I've got to tailor my skills specifically to the job market? I think the main motivation for me in my uh, in my PhD to become more and more computational and do, do more and more coding and more analysis and more machine learning um, was I was really interested in informing natural language processing research with um, linguistic you know theories and understanding and data. And as it turns out, NLP researchers don't go to linguistics conferences and they for sure do not read our journals. Um, so in order to have an impact, I needed to start going to them. Uh, and it was coming into this new discipline and learning about new methods and being like, oh, hey, I could do that. Um, that really got me started. Uh, and I, the things that you, or at least I did to prepare myself to be a compelling faculty candidate, which clearly I'm not, not quite compelling enough, but that's okay. Um, 
also translated very well into helping me on the job market. So um, being very visible online, talking about my scholarship publicly. I had a blog, I had Twitter, um, I had a website, I shared all my papers, um, I shared my code for my papers, which don't don't look at it. It's it's not good. <laughs> don't don't search that out. Um, it's still out there in case anyone wants to replicate it, but uh, uh, rip. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Um, so all of the things that I was doing to be a more compelling faculty candidate also helped me be a more compelling um, data science candidate. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily intentional as so much as it was, oh, that's lucky. Um, well, yeah. you touched on something that, that keeps coming up over and over again on, on the podcast. And mm. I, I think it's especially interesting in your case. And that's the mm -hmm. idea of building a personal brand. Um, yeah. you, you know, you talked about like leveraging, you hinted at it, you, you talked about leveraging a personal brand online. I noticed in your case, you know, a lot of people do blog posts, some people do podcasts. In your case, you're doing some of that, but you're also doing Twitch, like live streaming your coding. Um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Just because I, I, I think it's such a cool angle and, and potentially underutilized by a lot of people. I have been thinking about it recently and I genuinely can't remember why I started live coding. Uh, I can't remember like what, what pushed me in that direction. Uh, but it's something that I had been doing in front of people for a little bit. So I was, um, I mean, I, I'm still enrolled, but I haven't, haven't taught any recently. Um, I was instructor for a program called Software Carpentry, now called uh, The Carpentries, along with Data Carpentry, which was a um, software engineering, very, very basic level software engineering uh, training program specifically for academics and researchers. And part of the instructor training for that was when you're teaching someone to do something in code, you should write the code in front of them so they can see your process and talk through what you're doing. Um, and also when you do technical interviews, that's the that's the thing yes. you got to do, um, except you don't have the uh, an IDE and they don't let you Google things, um, which I think is ridiculous, but that's the second point. Um, and uh, I got started on just Twitch and then I added um, YouTube as well. And it's been very helpful for me, um, both to have a space to work on things that are related to my job, but also a little bit more, more fun for me and just like me yeah. trying things out and noodling around. Um, and it's also been great to start to build up a community of people who tune in and offer suggestions and um, hopefully learn something from me Googling stuff for an hour. Well, well speaking of that, because I, I love that focus on process, because we see these completed GitHub repos, Jupyter Notebooks, projects, whatever, mm -hmm. and we kind of look at them as monoliths, as if they were just written from top to bottom by somebody who knew what they were doing every step. What mm. are some of the things that you find, because I'm guessing you get a lot of feedback about this, what are yeah. the things that people are learning by seeing you live code that, that they can't get, you, you can't get across through another medium? Yeah, I think probably the, um, the number one thing is how to um, overcome an error. So you're coding along, you get an error message, what do you do next? Um, so I always start by reading the error message. If it's one that I'm familiar with and like I'm like, oh, I've done this before, then it's yeah. very quick for me to fix. If it's something I haven't done before, it's a little bit slower to fix. Um, and I try to talk through my process and then also um, show what my Google search terms yeah, are, yeah. which I know sounds very silly and like, oh, you're not a real coder, you have to Google things. People Google things all the time. And knowing how to um, create queries that will get you the information that you want is uh, an important skill in writing code yeah. that does not generally get taught explicitly. So hopefully I help people there. Yeah, well, I, I love that you're flagging that. I remember seeing um, one of the most refreshing examples of this, and I was reminded of it when I watched one of your live streams, was 
uh, Jeremy Howard at FastAI, when he runs his course, right, you, you see him go, oh, we're getting an error, like copy-paste error into Google, and there you go. Mm -hmm. And it's just so nice to have now people more open about empowering um, learners to go, hey, it's okay for me to just look stuff up on Google every once in a while. Um, yeah, that's... absolutely. And did you start doing the live stream before your job at Kaggle? Uh, no, I think I started after, uh, but not, not that far after. Uh, okay. Yeah, cool. and it's just something I have enjoyed doing, and people seem to want to show up, uh, which continues to shock me, but I'm glad you guys like it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's so great to see examples of live coding makes it so much more real. Um, so then your job at Kaggle, what is that like now? What's your focus? What's your day-to-day? Yeah, so it varies pretty wildly. Um, today I had a bunch of meetings, so that's what my day today looked like. Um, I'm trying to come up with like a good a good day. So I do um, a lot of external talks. So I spend quite a bit of time uh, preparing talks. Of course, I do um, the YouTube content. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, monitoring and engaging with the community, and I need to do that today, actually. Um, so I used to I used to actually read all the forum posts on Kaggle every day, wow. um, and now I read a summarized version of all the forum posts on Kaggle every day, uh, thanks to my. NLP project that I worked on in my life coding for like three months. Um, but that's taken that down from like, I don't know, an hour and a half a day to more like 20 minutes, which is great. Nice. Um, I file a lot of bugs. I do a lot of testing. Um, I sit in a lot of product meetings and sort of like um, act as the the resident expert user who's like, oh, hey, if you do this, then I'm going to be confused or, mm -hmm. um, oh, that's not going to work if it doesn't support Unicode or something like that um, to provide to provide feedback on, on the product as it continues to evolve. Um, so those are sort of the, the bulk of the things I do. That, that's actually really interesting and very meta too, because you know, mm -hmm. data scientist working at Kaggle. And so you are doing some data science work. You mentioned, uh, I guess, mm -hmm. text summarization. Is that part of it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That is uh, that's something I've been working on. Um, it continues to be a work in progress. Eventually, I'd like uh, a bot that's integrated with um, our backend so it can do more more streaming data rather than just doing it once a day, which is what I'm doing right now. Um, but yeah, that's sort of my my big project at the moment, which is uh, it's big. I, yeah. have, I have a long wish list of features that I don't think I want to get through, but I'll do my best. I guess everyone will always have their wish list. Um, one theme I, I do want to make sure we touch on too, and we mm -hmm. talked about it just before we started recording, but. Um, just this this idea of the evolution of NLP, the direction mm. the field is going in. I mean, you've got a really interesting perspective on it. So maybe I'll just tee you off with that prompt. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, so many. Uh, so it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the history of NLP. Um, I find these days a lot of people who are interested in NLP are coming from computer vision. Um, and I am not as familiar with computer vision uh, as a field, uh, but my, my, my impression is that it evolved pretty differently from, from natural language processing. Um, so natural language processing uh, started getting really active in like the 60s and 70s, um, although there was like a little bit before. And a lot of the early systems were what are called expert systems. They're rule-based systems. So someone would would write something down, uh, would write down a set of rules that you would use to you know, um, generate uh, questions, for example. Eliza is a really good yeah. um, example of this particular um, generation, that's um, E-L-I-Z-A, it's a, a therapy chat bot that just repeated back what you you said as a question. Um, and the more, uh, and the, so that was the first big wave. And then the second big wave was more statistical and base, engram-based models, um, which worked 
weirdly well. <laughs> there's a, uh, I think it's a paper. I don't remember. Anyway, um, there's um, there's a lot of discussion about how well engram made bottles work, which was surprising to linguists at the time because um, language has rich internal structure that you can't in theory, uh, easily captured by sort of a sliding window of two words at a time, for example. And just for anybody who's listening, by the way, n-gram meaning like a two-gram meaning looking at two words at a time, a three-gram meaning looking at three words at a time, and so on. Yes, um, although confusingly, um, one, two, and three are una, by, and try, and then four is just four-gram. No one says tetragram. Um, maybe somebody says tetragram, not to me <laughs> and my face. Um, yes. And then the third big sort of wave was uh, neural, uh, neural methods. Um, and for a couple of years, certainly while I was in graduate school, the, the biggest sort of um, architecture that was really doing well on a bunch of tasks was uh, bidirectional LSTMs, long short term memory of flavor of, of RNN, um, with uh, attention. So that was that was the really the reigning model architecture for state of the art for several years. Um, and I'd say we're almost in the fourth wave now, which is still sort of like a sub category of the third wave that I was talking about earlier. And this is um, transformer based models. So Transformers, um, proposed by Vaswani et al. 2017, and we, we read the paper on the Kaggle channel. So if you want to read the paper with us, you can come, come join. Uh, and those have had uh, a lot of success, uh, particularly in uh, machine translation. So the original Transformer model was proposed for machine translation. Um, and it also has an encoder and decoder, like many sort of um, sequence to sequence models. And just the encoder has also shown to be pretty uh, helpful, especially with additional modifications for language modeling. Um, so language modeling is given you know, some words, what words are likely to come after them. Uh, previously, people did this as a conditional probability distribution very um, explicitly. Uh, and in transformers, um, it is much less probable. I mean, it's still stochastic, but it's not a probability model. Um, and the transformer-based language models that you might be familiar with, like BERT or GPT-2 or um, ELMO is not a, uh, a transformer model. ELMO is a bidirectional LSTM. It's two LSTMs, one in each direction. Um, or other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head have shown to be very effective at generating text that seems to be fairly fluent. And so by fluent here, I mean, um, seems to flow, seems to follow correct, um, like agreement structures. So like, uh, I am, you are, that sort of agreement or, or plurality agreement, um, and seems to be more or less semantically coherent. So um, was it text to transformer, I think is the, the little web app that you can play with and you can seed. I think that one's based on GPT-2. You can seed it with a little string of text and it'll sort of complete a paragraph for you. Um, and those have been enjoying a lot of success. Um, I just I think it was just announced that uh, Google search recently incorporated uh, BERT in the, the search results. So um, that's something that you are, you are probably using if you are using Google search. Um, but uh, what the, a lot of the, the deep models and sort of third slash fourth wave have not been focused on as explicitly. Um, and I should say, it's not like the whole field was suddenly like, down with rules and struck them out entirely. Um, that's sort of just the, the trend within the field and people are working on many, many different things other than that. So I, I don't want it to sound like people are only doing, you know, uh, transformer based models right now, because that is not the case. 
with the a lot of the deep learning models, and not all of them, but the majority, there isn't a focus on uh, understanding. There isn't a focus on knowledge. Um, so the um, you know these transformer-based language models will produce text that seems as if a human might have produced it, but which contains, for example, factual inaccuracies. Um, or, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who it was on Twitter. Um, someone on Twitter was was sort of seeding uh, GPT-2 with um, uh, the, the beginning of a sequence, like, um, if you drop a match in a woodland, you will blank, where it's sort of start the fire is, is sort of the, the intended completion there. Um, and the, the models were not um, uh, not following that sort of... Yeah, the logical trajectory. Time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so that I think is a really big challenge right now. And there's lots of, there's lots of work on this. There are lots of people who are building um, knowledge models. So, um, uh, and I'm blanking on all of them. WordNet is WordNet a thing? I have a, a number of, of questions about just like uh, th yeah. this kind of thing. And I've been dying to get an expert to, to, to ask these questions to. So, mm -hmm. um, okay. So first off, I came to understand that GPT-2 at least is, is does mm -hmm. this thing called babbling. Like you get into mm -hmm. an elevator with someone, you say, hey, how are you? They go, I'm doing well, you. Oh, quite well, thanks. Um, uh, you know, some weather we're having. And then they go, oh yeah, brutal weather and so on. And no information is actually being exchanged other than a sort of mm -hmm. general mood setting that humans use essentially to establish some kind of uh, almost hormonal balance between the two where you both know that as primates you're playing the same game. Um, yeah. Then, th so as you flag, like there's a separate question of like, okay, what if we now want to have a rational conversation of the form, um, you know, I, I, you're going to teach me something and you're going to walk me through a logical thought process. And GPT-2 would be, in principle, incapable of, of doing this. Um, so one of the things that, that I was trying to figure out was like, is this really a limitation of the architecture of the model and its capacity? Mm -hmm. Or is it that, um, that babbling, that this exchange of, of sort of pleasantries mm -hmm. actually becomes content in the limit where you expose this model to mm -hmm. just such a huge amount of, of data that eventually at some point it'll dimensionality reduce something like a process of logical reasoning or, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sort of like, I think I'm off my chump here, but anyway, do, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Am I, am I way off the mark here? No. Okay. So let's, uh, lots of good questions and I'm going to sort of like uh, break down a couple of things. Um, so first of all, the, the thing you describe where like one person's like, hello, how are you? I'm doing great. That's sort of back and forth. Um, so in the um, NLP literature, the term for that is actually chit chat. Um, and that is a specific task. So specifically it's a chat bot task to do this sort of chit chat and back and forth. Um, and uh, <laughs> I just did a quick Google and people are definitely using GPT-2 in chit chat, um, but in chit chat tasks, but it's not the primary purpose of the model. So I think when people say babbling, they are more, um, are you familiar with aphasia? Uh, oh, sensory aphasia, is that a thing? Or uh, sensory aphasia, I only know the, the language related ones if they're non-language related ones. 
Um, so there's there's several types of language processing disorders that can happen um, due to you know brain trauma or strokes or, or different things. Um, and one of them, in one of them, you can continue to produce sort of fluent sounding text. So you you have syntactically correct language that you produce, but you don't understand what you're saying um, and you can't have a meaningful conversation and, and transfer information back and forth. Um, and people who have had this condition and then recovered from it um, say often that speech to them sounded like bird song. Like there was no meaning. Like they knew that they were trying to like wow. interact with you, but they didn't have an understanding. And I think that's a better metaphor for what um, GPT-2 and uh, BERT and these these large transformer language models are. Um, I, I will note some people would say that they're not language models. I'm going to call them language models. Uh, so just to, just to sort of block those apart. Um, and there is no explicit modeling of logic, of narrative structure, of knowledge, so that like a Dalmatian is a type of dog included in these models. It's not intended to be included. So it's it's not so much a limitation of the design as it just it was never intended to be part of the design in the first place. Um, and when these types of models have seemed to achieve good results on more inductive or deductive logical type tasks, um, it does seem to be the result of um, using statistical cues yeah. rather than um, any sort of any sort of understanding. Um, and I think it's, I don't know, it's so tempting to anthropomorphize, right? It's so tempting to be like, oh, the model understands X because it did Y and I would have done Y in X situation. Um, and I think it's a super normal human thing where we want to see human-like behaviors and other things and sort of extrapolate our own experiences. Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think we should be aware of our desire to do that. Um, and these models do not have understanding of the knowledge. They don't uh, they don't have the, they don't know that like a Dalmatian is a type of dog. They don't know anything. They are just sort of um, guessing. Yeah. <laughs> They're guessing in a really sophisticated way constantly. Um, and also uh, another point that you mentioned, so taking the the output of the model and using that to sort of um, uh, feedback into the model. So specifically for um, chatbots, which is the one that I know of that exists, uh, where people have have tried this, where you take the, the generated output and try to use it as input, um, you pretty quickly degenerate, just reach like a very degenerate, um, unusable, unhuman-like, weird sort of text structure. So it is not just that you can do, so it's not that you can use these models to create um, additional data and then use that as as image, as you would image augmentation data where you sort of like flip and rotate and you know yeah. squelch them around. You can't really do that with language. Um, and trying to do that gets you to a very weird place. And I think it, I think it makes sense if you think about a conversation, right? A good conversation is very good, but there's so few things that can go wrong before you're like, ah, this conversation stinks. Like yeah. you call somebody by the wrong name once and don't apologize, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you're written off. Um, also, if I've called anybody by the wrong name today, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just gonna apologize now. Blanket apology. Um, so the the ceiling on how good NLB systems can be is very, 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 very high. And I like personal opinion as a linguist, I don't think we're there yet for pretty much any task except maybe spell checking. See, that's really, uh, really fascinating. And it gets philosophical really quickly when what you're talking about, like, what does it mean to understand something? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, is, is there such a thing as understanding that transcends modeling or transcends prediction? Um, mm -hmm. So 
is it then it's your view that we need a radically different kind of model, one that's architecturally different from the BERTs, the uh, the the sequence to sequence models of the past, um, in order to achieve any yeah. kind of coherence. I think we're probably going to need separate models. Um, there's definitely like a place for language modeling. It's you you do need language models to do most most NLP tasks, and I think they're very powerful and good language models. So, no complaints there. Um, but I think you also do need to have explicit world knowledge modeling. You need to have a knowledge base. You need to have like word net. You need to have this deeper semantic understanding, because if I'm uh, if I'm using like a conversational interface, just as an example. Um, my usual conversational interface type uh, interactions are with a human being. Uh, so that's what I'm gonna be judging that interaction against. Um, and if you say, um, if I say, what's the weather? And you're like, I've been to Berlin. That's a, that's a poor interaction. Um, and knowing that like, not only that there are a range of possible answers to that, but that your answer should be correct, um, I think is going to require a lot more than just throwing a bigger neural net at it. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I could be wrong. Who knows? Uh, I, I am, I'm constantly um, delighted by uh, how far we're, we're coming as a field. But it, it touches on, on a lot of those. Like, I think I, um, I was reading, there was this uh, semi-famous short, it was really like a short blog post that I think Rich Sutton put out um, a couple of months ago now, where he made the point that you know maybe all we need is more compute, and mm. more or less you know um, it, the, the points you were making about you know rule-based models over time have tended to evolve into simple, highly generalizable models that are backed by a lot of computational horsepower. Um, but uh, but yeah, oh. the, the rule-based models are there. They they're just not getting uh, the headlines. Um, like pretty much any natural language generation program that is actually being used today is rule-based. Um, so like generating uh, stories from sports cores, for example, that's all rule-based. No one's doing that with neural neural stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's the unglamorous underbelly. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I was having a conversation with somebody who's uh, working in self-driving cars and something similar came <laughs> up. Uh, and what he was saying was essentially this idea that, yeah, at a certain point, um, you, uh, everybody thinks it's all neural networks and so on, but because of the latency, because of the practical considerations that go into it, you need to do all this compute on the car. Um, it's, uh, yeah, very quickly devolve into this sort of thing. It's, maybe it's because I'm not a machine learning researcher and I do care more about the subject area. But for me, we did better because our model was bigger and we had more data and more compute and we ran it for longer. It's just not an interesting research finding. Like, okay, good job. Yay. How can you, I want a smaller model that does better. That's what gets me interested. Like um, Efficient Net, which we just read in the in the Kaggle reading group, really great paper, smaller model, orders of magnitude smaller and still achieving state-of-the-art results on these you know, very hard tasks. Um, that, that's what I like. Well, actually then speaking of, of paper reading and all that, I, th I think this is something a lot of people struggle with, especially when they're trying to break in. And in fairness, not everyone has to do it. A lot of people can go into analytics or data science without having to you know, get really good at reading mm -hmm. papers. But um, what are some of the strategies you found help the most in, in order to either motivate yourself to read papers or just get over that initial hump, that learning curve? The reason why papers are hard to read is because they are written for people who are 
already doing research in that specific field, right? With very few exceptions. Um, so if I'm writing, you know, uh, an assignment for some undergrads, I'm going to stop and explain all the terms, and I'm going to be like, oh, don't forget we talked about this last week, and I'm going to help build that scaffolding. Uh, and academic papers assume that you already had that scaffolding because you're a researcher in this field. So it can be difficult to get to the point where you can start really understanding and um, uh, what's going on in, in a field as a whole. Uh, things that I have found helpful, if the author of the paper also wrote a blog post, those are usually really fantastic. Um, if the paper was presented at a conference and you can find the, um, uh, and the, the presentation was recorded and that's available, I find that very helpful. Um, so particularly for me, especially when I was starting out with the math, um, it's much easier for me to um, understand math if somebody tells it to me with like, sound words or, or signed words, it doesn't have to be sound, um, than it is for me to understand the um, notation, probably because I have very little formal training in mathematical notation and it's just, I'm dyslexic, it all looks the same, uh, don't love it, uh, reading it by myself. Um, and as for um, getting motivated, uh, I mean, I have areas that I'm interested in, so I'm always motivated to learn more about that because I, I care a lot. Um, and whoever you are, if you're interested in data science, there's probably something else that you're also interested in. Like, um, I always use Pokemon as an example for some reason, um, you know, like video games or music or, um, uh, I don't know, knitting. And whatever your interest is, there's probably someone who's written a paper on whatever that thing is, plus machine learning, plus deep neural networks or, or whatever. Um, so having that sort of like in like, oh, I'm interested in this thing. And also they're talking about this other thing I want to learn about. I can find, I personally find to be very motivating. Um, and it's, if you are just starting out, I would actually recommend starting with a textbook uh, because that will give you the vocabulary to begin to understand these papers. Um, and in, um, Natural language processing in particular, I always re recommend uh, Speech and Language Processing by Dan Jurafsky and the second person, where's my coffee? It's in the other room, uh, Martin. Jurafsky and Martin is the, is the text. Uh, I also really like the Tidy Textbook, which is by Julia Silge and um, D. Robinson. David? I think it's David. I think it's David Robinson. Okay, great. Well, we can actually yeah. we can link to those too, because I think those would be useful oh, resources great. for a lot of people. Um, awesome. Actually, one thing I do want to make sure we touch on too before we uh, before we we move on from here is Kaggle itself, and because yeah. Kaggle is such a powerful tool for people trying to break into data science or just trying to up their game. Like if, if you're already a data scientist, you want to learn about you know you do NLP, you want to learn about computer vision. Kaggle is a great way. Um, what are some of the most under leveraged or mm. um, the, sort of the, the tools that Kaggle offers, the opportunities Kaggle offers that people aren't aware of or don't utilize to the maximum degree usually? Oh, secrets. I mean, nothing nothing actually secret. Um, the forums, uh, the competition forums tend to be, uh, you know, little, little hives of activity. People are talking about the specific competitions. Uh, but the other forums on the site are also really good resources um, to reach out, to make friends, to ask questions, to answer questions. Um, even if you're, you're a very new data scientist, um, there's also lots of other new data scientists. They might ask something that you happen to know about. Um, and it's really nice to, like, see a question and be like, oh, I can answer that. And then you answer it and, you, you know, you feel good about yourself and you make a friend. Um, because um, I think something that can be really 
uh, you know, just hard and lonely, especially if you're self-taught, is that feeling of loneliness, that it's just you and you don't have, if you're not in a program, you don't have your, your students that you're, other students that you're working with. Um, so being able to sort of build a community and start to, to meet people, um, I think is, is really powerful and um, can help you, you with your, your learning goals. Um, and there's also, so of course we have the data sets for, uh, for competitions, but we also have a lot of data sets that users upload. So on the, on the public data platform. And a question that I get a lot from folks is, hey, I wanna, I wanna do a data science project, but I don't know what I wanna do. Um, and usually the data sets that people upload, I won't say usually, many of the data sets that people upload, they, there's a specific question that they, they want to answer using that data set. Um, and if you find a data set that no one's used before that maybe needs a little bit of cleaning so you can show off your data cleaning skills um, and that you can have a completely unique project around um, that, I think, especially if you're, you're on the job market, uh, can help you stand out more than like another MNIST project or another Titanic project. Not that there's anything wrong with those. Um, the Titanic is a great starting point, but it's a good way to help yourself um, develop new skills um, and um, you know, stand out a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that that's great advice, especially the uniqueness stuff. Like we see that mm -hmm. come up over and over again. Yeah, um, very cool. And actually, one last thing I, I do want to ask as well, kind of Kaggle related. So Kaggle is 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 a sort of a unique situation because generally there are these competitions, and everybody's trying to inch out everybody else in terms of squeaking out a little bit more model performance and a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, in in real life, there are you know time constraints, other considerations that cause yes, people to focus on things other than model accuracy. And so one question yes. that I get a lot is people say, hey, look, like I'm trying to figure out when do I stop? I've got this open-ended yeah. problem. I can keep tuning my hyperparameters until I, I overfit the validation set and everything. Um, what would be your advice to somebody who's trying to figure out a stopping criterion? Yeah, so the first thing I do is talk to your stakeholders. Like, what do they think is good enough? Um, and if they say 100% accuracy, maybe maybe try finding a different team to work with, or that's a good time for some education and be like, hey, it's not going to happen. Um, not because I'm a bad data scientist, but because your 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 expectations are unrealistic. Um, and when people are like, yeah, oh, this works for us, that's that's a good stopping point. Because um, there generally tends to be um, sort of like a I don't know, what was that square root? Yeah, there tends to be a plateau. So you're going to start getting diminishing returns pretty quickly. Um, or, I mean, depending on how complex your, your problem is, at some point you'll start getting diminishing returns. If your model is going to be touching a lot of people or a lot of interactions, or it has a really large scale, um, then continuing to sort of squeak up towards the top of that plateau is a really might be a good use of your time. But if it's a smaller model or if it's only going to be run, say, like once a week or um, you, you just don't have that scale yet, um, as soon as you stop seeing like major improvements on a weekly basis, I'd, I'd pivot and do something else. Because um, generally, you, you'll know if you're on a team. You'll probably be at like your Google, your Zillow, your Facebook, your Uber, a large company that has a lot of interactions and they're really, really, really trying to optimize for and 0.00002% is a big game for them. Yeah. Um, you'll know if you're on that team. Uh, and if you're not, you probably also have a quadrillion other things you can slash should be doing. Um, you know, building relationships with stakeholders, um, you know, um, addressing tech debt. Um, if you're on a small team, probably also building pipelines, you're doing data warehousing. Uh, and time spent on model performance is probably not going to be, yeah, not going to be the best thing. Um, so I'd say talk to your stakeholders, number one. Yeah, I love yeah. how you roped in opportunity cost as a, as a concept there too, because I, I think that's thing, a thing that 
at least if you're doing a project on your own, like a Jupyter notebook, you know, your own personal mm -hmm. project, it's easy to sort of lose sight of it, but there's even opportunity cost there. Like you, you could oh, improve absolutely. your pipeline, you could deploy your model or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Or you could be on your couch eating popcorn, you know, hey, <laughs> leisure time is the thing you have to have. That That's legit. That's called, yeah, I was going to say that's, no, it's not called, that's not quite training time. No, it's the opposite of training time. <laughs> Um, awesome. Well, thanks so much for making the time. Really appreciate the chat. A lot of good insights here. Um, do you have a, a, you're obviously super active on social media. Do you have links that you want to plug? Um, so probably the best way to know what I'm up to is to follow me on Twitter. I'm R-C-T-A-T-M-A-N. Um, I also do live streaming and that's, um, on Twitch, R-C-T-A-T-M-A-N, or also on the Kaggle YouTube, um, page, which is, uh, on Kaggle's YouTube. Uh, and that's Wednesdays and Fridays at 9am. On Wednesdays, we read papers and I literally read the paper uh, and, and talk about it. And then on Fridays, we do live coding. So I'd love to have anyone who's interested uh, join in. Excellent. So we'll make sure we post the uh, the links in the article. It's going to accompany this, this recording. So if you guys are listening to this on Anchor or iTunes or wherever, make sure you check out the Medium post because that's where we'll put all these links to make sure you guys can access them. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.